a cousin of Pilsner. Not a Pilsner. I didn't know what the answer was. But a Pilsner. No, Hellas. Oh, Hellas. What else? Bach. Bach. Bach's not really. Kolsch is. Yes. What's an American cousin of Pilsner? Yeah. American Pilsner. What else? Green Ale. Yeah. What else? Blonde. Premium blogger, American premium blogger, and American standard blogger. Standard blogger. Well, I mean, it, it is a Pilsner custom in, the, in probably the most inbred sense of the word. <laughs> so, what do you say makes it a custom? Basically, if they didn't exist before Pilsner. Um, they're in direct response to the popularity of Pilsner. Their aim is exactly the same audience that would drink Pilsner. Uh, and their overall refreshingness, the fact that they're lagers, they're golden, um, that there's typically somewhat of a balance between hop and malt in there, um, with the exception of uh, standard American lager. Uh, but they're not all lagers. Hmm? But they're not all lagers. The interesting thing there is that, that uh, home, Cologne, which is the home of Kolsch, which is a geography question. Um, they they they're they're somewhat xenophobic. Um, they were the last German province to allow hops in, and they did not want anything to do with this new fancy schmancy. GMO thing called Lager East that these other guys found in 1840. They, they, they figured that was manipulating God. <laughs> so they banned Lager East. They banned loggers altogether. <laughs> Which is why Colts don't have ales. <laughs> and kind of why, if you're anywhere else outside of Cologne and you ask for something like a Kolsch, you ask for a rice bar for something, the waitress will usually rather derisively point you to where the nearest train station is. How <laughs> you Cologne is north here. You, got, you get on that, you go there. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Beer history is kind of fun. But, and many of the styles are interrelated. And one of the most important things to remember is that most of the things we think about in terms of beer didn't exist prior to about 1840. IPA existed. Pale ales somewhat existed. Brown ales and stouts existed. But none of the true lager styles started before about 1840. Everything at post-1840. There were some early on versions of them, but they were far more closer to what our Belgian Trappist beers were. They would cold condition beers and such long before the isolation of Lager Yeast. But the clarity of flavor and the balance that we have now didn't exist much before that. Okay.
purposes. You can do it. Uh, to promote beer literacy, to uh, recognize um, tasting abilities and such, and to promote beer awareness. Close. Yes. Um, promote beer literacy, uh, promote appreciation of real beer, and recognize tasting and evaluation skills. Outstanding! Damn! <laughs> I'm going to call this. <laughs> I would mention that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're ready, I'm going to call it. Let's see what you can do here. Give me, um, give me in order from lowest highest the ranks. Okay. Apprentice, recognized, certified, international, master, grandmaster, grandmaster plus. Very good. For an extra bonus. Yep. 
uh, uh, certified five. Uh, national twenty. Master hundred and then oh, what? No, master hundred and then oh no 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 sorry. Master's fifty. Forty. Forty. Uh, yeah. All right. Masters 40, uh, Grandmaster 100, and your 100. See, the point of that question is the devil is in the details. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Pass around some stuff here. This is going to be a little more fun tonight than other classes. Not so much. Tell them I'm going to become a beer judge. The first thing they'll say is, oh, I can do that. Yeah, that beer tastes pretty good. Give me another one. Yeah, that's real hard. Well, you know, have you tried it? You know. Um, and the first thing you can do is whip them out a decent beer and go, evaluate them. Tastes like beer. You know, or as my brother-in-law would say, just like Budweiser, I'm handing them a freaking stout. It's <laughs> like Budweiser. It's just tease for me on everything. Um, but um, to say this beer tastes good, this beer doesn't taste good, that's drinking for pleasure. That is certainly something that we all do. It's certainly one of the reasons why we enjoy beer. Um, we want to drink for pleasure. The thing is, is that when we have a truly great beer, the pleasure is immeasurably more than if we have a beer that's with an off flavor. So brewers, as they're learning, come across impediments, come across difficulties, um, continually repeat mistakes, or get kind of halfway to where they want to go. As a judge, you are simply letting them letting them know if they hit the target <coughs> anywhere or if it's part of bullseye. The style parameters are huge. And a beer that is balanced and hits up here, or a beer that is balanced and hits down here, may both be perfectly valid examples of style. 
one of the reasons why there were so many beers for Belgian night is that it's impossible for me to feel like I've given you a quality example of style, say, in Belgian double, when Chimay is so far different from Westmall. And yet they're both perfectly valid examples of style. They kind of do this, with Chimay down here and Westmall up here. And there are others that are kind of right dead center middle of the road. An IPA, an American IPA, can be down here, be quite refreshing, get about four and a half, five percent alcohol, um, have a very clean malt character, a very aggressive uh, hop bitterness, or a reasonably aggressive hop bitterness, and a pleasant nose. Or it can be on the other end where it has more sweetness, a lot more aggressive hop, much more hop flavor, and a huge grassy nose that just reaches out and screams hop plant to Okay? Again, up here down here. Perfectly valid examples of style. Your job as a judge is to interpret the style guidelines. It's tough. And evaluate where they are in that target. Okay? If they didn't hit dead on here, they kind of came into the side and smeared their way across several items. That's your evaluation. Wow, it's got the perfect nose. Gee, it seems to have pretty decent hot bitterness, but it doesn't have the body. And it doesn't have the carbonation. And it doesn't have the clarity that it ought to have. It's way hazy. Even though a little bit of haze is okay, in the stop. So they kind of smeared it a little bit. This is why the descriptors we've been talking about, this is why how we evaluate and the order in which we evaluate has been so important when we're talking about beer. Because you're really starting to align your thoughts with, okay, yes, it's a beer. Now, did you hit what you were aiming at? Okay. One of the worst things that a competitor can do, one of the hardest things that a judge has to do, is be presented with something and not be told what they were aiming at. Because I don't know which target they were aiming at. Because honestly, as soon as one ends, there's another target. And they're all shaped different. Okay? If he was aiming over here, we've got this one, and I don't know that he was aiming over there, I can't tell him what he did right or wrong. I can only tell them when I'm tasting and whether or not I'm enjoying the experience. So, um, you know, it's, it's important as a competitor to make sure that you are accurate in your labeling. It's important as a judge that you are accurate in your evaluation beyond just what you do and don't like or just sensing something. Remember what we said. It is just as valid to say not only what you perceive, but what you do not perceive, and how it fits style. And those may be positive or negative attributes. If you're presented with a doppelbach, it is perfectly appropriate to say no hops, exactly as you expect in that style. Okay, No hop aroma kind of thing. Uh, it's perfectly appropriate. Um, 
when judging, say, a strong ale to say, not much head retention. Well, that's appropriate in that style. You're telling them what they did right. Can anybody give me two items that would be appropriate to mention on every single beer in terms of telling, in terms of aroma and flavor? DMS I love my class. <laughs> okay. There are more than 800 known flavor components in beer. There are only some 600 named flavor components in wine. Each one has about another 200 unnamed. So we still outdo wine in terms of complexity and variability. We use four ingredients. We work it all year long. Um, and we have to ways of knowing whether or not we're doing the right job all year long. And evaluating beer is not just a set of random notes. It becomes your description of your tasting experience, your description of your evaluation. Okay? Um, anybody who's entered competitions knows the difference between somebody who's just writing notes about what they're tasting, which is generally where what you expect from people that are in certified and recognized territory and apprentice territory, on into people who are really describing their experience and evaluating that beer against the guidelines, which is kind of the upper end of certified on international and master, with more depth being quite obvious as you go up the scale. Would that be true? Anybody who's been in competitions? We generally find that the national judges write great score sheets, most of them. And most of the nationals write great score sheets. Um, unless you happen to see on the ordinal number that you're number 14 out of 15 in the flight. Yeah. So the philosophy that I've given you on the beginning um, is actually a response that I wrote to a, an examinee on, uh, on their report. The examinee went on a tirade and basically said why they were not going to memorize styles, they were not going to have to learn this stuff because they were going to have the guidelines in front of them anyway. Well, the fact of the matter is, is no sooner do you become a judge or you start judging, you start talking about becoming a judge, then people start bringing you beer and saying, here, I need you to try this. And you will not have the style guidelines in front of you at that moment in time. I almost guarantee it. And you will only have your flavor memory, which we're trying to create by tasting these beers and your own brewing experience to go by, and whatever you happen to have memorized along the way in this course and in the guidelines. It's an ongoing thing to continue to learn. Nobody knows everything there's to know about here. We are all gaining new ground daily. New things get discovered, new things are on the horizon, old things get discarded. Um, sometimes we have to work real hard to change bad biases, such as peated malt in Scottish ale. Um, but honestly, you have your own your own skills to go with. So hopefully, this whole series of classes has not been sort of a, an, an exercise in trying to just cram a bunch of random facts into your head 
and be able to regurgitate by rote memorization. Hopefully, we've strung it all together from ingredients on into processes on into recipes. And now moving into evaluation. Now you have a whole technical background to move into evaluation. Hopefully, the styles have been relatively understand. And if they're not, enough. Because I'm constantly working to improve this course. I, it, you know, it doesn't do me any good to stand up here if nobody's getting um, It's very important that you understand that the exam downplays statistics. They are not even on the radar in terms of something that is actually scored. So you don't have to memorize the statistics of beers except for the recipe questions. And we talked about a lot of that strategy, that basically they're all just about going to be 1045 to 1055, with Doppelbach being a little bit stronger. They're almost all going to be you know, easy to name the color. You don't have to name the SRM value. You can just give it a golden color or an amber color, um, that kind of thing. The descriptions that you give the beer have far more weight than just mere stats. Stats are impressive, and they certainly make it easier to tell somebody who's a master versus somebody who's a bachelor. But in terms of having to memorize things, you know, it's actually really easy to memorize the stats. When you start brewing the styles, all of that stuff starts coming together. But if you haven't brewed the styles, get the stats. Not that big a deal. Pretty easy to calculate them, but forget about it. Forget. Um, in evaluating beer, we have a range of scores. We talked about these things being valid and that kind of that's In general, on a score sheet, we try not to score below 13. It is possible that we have a beer that we can only give a two to the aroma, nothing for appearance, nothing much, maybe a point for, mouth, for uh, the overall mouthfeel. Um, and not more than a couple of points in flavor, and add it up and say it's a nine. In that case, we still basically put a 13 at the bottom and write courtesy middle on the score. We just don't. We are not in this to ding people too hard. But if you get something down below 20, you would better have a lot of corrective feedback to you. There better be a lot of things that you're finding in there, and you better have some very specific feedback to give them. Because if you don't, you're just fault finding. And being a fault finder is not what judging is all about. We are not here to just, just say, well, yeah, but it's not quite this. It's not quite that. Any brewer that hands you a beer is going to do that for you. Almost always, the first thing that a brewer does when they hand me a beer is apologize. It didn't quite turn out because this and that. It didn't go where I've started this way. And it kind of, uh, if this was a bar, what would you say to me? You'd say 375, please. <laughs> um, so. So, in terms of being a judge, act like 
the brewer maybe already has done that for you. Now you're going to tell them what you, what you like about beer. I work really hard to try to tell people what I like about beer. Um, even if I don't particularly like it. Yes? If the beer was bad enough where you thought it was going to mess up your taste or your palate, would you put that off to the end of a... It sure in order depends to on the competition. On a commercial competition, I kind of do a Campbell method, which is a wine method of judging where if it doesn't pass an aroma test, it will not end up in my mouth. Because um, commercial competitions are virtually pass fail. Um, we do very little writing up, up in commercial competitions, although I would like to see us score up. And I'd like to see us see score them for a couple of reasons. One, 15 years ago, I went around and brewers said, yeah, well, if I win awards, great. It goes on the wall. If I don't, nobody even knows I entered. So I don't care. And I'm not changing my recipe. These days, an awful lot of these guys, especially some of the very, very best brewers you've ever heard of, will say, yes, write them up. Because if I enter my beer across four or five competitions, and I'm coming up second, third, and fourth, but I'm not quite sure why, I want to see consistently what they're saying. And if it turns out that I've got a real issue, I can take this, because this is essentially a mini focus group, I can take this to management and go, look, across four different competitions, they're finding the same flaw. We've got some problem with what's ending up on the shelf. And here's what we need to fix. They can't do that. They're not armed with that information if we don't actually give them the feedback. Um, so, they, but on the other hand, we, you know, we leave ourselves open to criticizing professionals to make their living at it, and we're a bunch of amateurs as far as judges are concerned. Um, but I would like to see us write up peers in competition, in, in commercial competition. For that reason, I'd like to see us get more respect from the professional community. That way. Um, as far as a homebrew is concerned, yeah, you got to taste it, pretty much. If it is so foul, I mean, you're you're absolutely sure somebody basically shit in a glass. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. You don't have to. If that green apple beer you handed out the last week, I mean, obviously you smelled it. That thing screwed up my taste buds for a half hour. Okay. Yeah. So could you push that off to the end of the flight? You know, you smell already. You know, it's questionable. What you end up doing is just cleaning your palate with a lot of bread and a lot of water. And the technique that I have always used is if I have a calibration beer, first off. If you ever watch me judge, I almost never finish any of my samples. But secondly, I'm pretty diligent about keeping either the, the first really good beer that we have, hopefully it's number one in the flight, or um, the calibration beer for given one. And I keep those because they allow me, if I get a particularly bad beer or things start to happen, uh, and we'll talk about this, I can go back to that first beer and using my flavor memory say, oh, okay, I'm perceiving this flaw in that beer that wasn't there before, therefore my palate's drifting. So I need to fix that in some way. I either need to mentally adjust or I need to clean my palate some more before I can go on. Um, the biggest trick is not to drink too much. Generally, the way we've, I've kind of hinted at you guys to evaluate is, is I'm evaluating 
I try to get somebody else to do the pouring. And I'm evaluating and starting to write the appearance as they're pouring. And then I can bring it over and I can get a quick whiff in there that I'll finish my evaluation. But that quick whiff is to see if there's anything strongly off or strongly pleasant, whatever it may be. But then I'll go back and I will really detail analyze the aroma. And I'll take quite a long time doing it. Probably longer than I take doing the, uh, the flavors. The first sip that I take, yeah, I get flavor, but mostly what I start writing is aftertaste. And here's where judges end up writing or drinking too much, is that they'll start with flavor, and they go for a sip for all the top notes, and they go for a sip for all the secondary notes. Then they go for a sip for maybe the stuff they're trying to figure out. Then they'll get down to mouthfeel, and now they'll start thinking about the mouthfeel. In which case, their palate's actually changed, and they're getting different mouthfeel than they probably ought to. In many cases, they get astringents where it isn't there. Um, what that allows me to do by starting with mouthfeel first is that the mouthfeel is consistently in there. I, I know what that thing is feeling like. I know it's not like coming all the way through and, and that. But I'm also getting all the aftertaste. I go right up, and I can kind of go about two lines down and start in on a couple of notes of aftertaste. But then I'll take another sip. And that went off swirl, and I will taste, and I'll be writing what I'm getting out of it, because I remember my first impressions. Now I'm really kind of getting my second impressions, and I get more depth out of it. I'm writing all of my flavor notes at that point. So I take things out of order. I go to appearance, then I go to the uh, aroma, then I go to mouthfeel, then I go to flavor. And then I come down to overall. What that allows me to do is pretty much evaluate a beer in three sips. A really, really great judge one time, um, it, even though he never never worked past certified rank, but he really a truly wonderful person, Martin Lodal, told me that 80% of what you need to know is in the aroma. You should be able to get most of the flavor that you need in the first sip, perhaps a second sip to confirm things and get the details out of it, and pretty much after that you're just drinking. And what that means is that you have a tremendous amount. If I, I'm doing two or three sips, eight, nine beers into it, I've still got a fresh palate. You guys that are doing four or five sips are finishing off the entire two-ounce sample. Pretty, pretty fatigued. You know, they're running with an awful lot of burdens on it. And it's an awful, awfully harder, awfully lot harder to cleanse your palate when you've had a lot of beer than it is when you're only taking little bits of it. Awesome. <coughs> no amount of tasting. Mm -hmm. Garlic. There's no amount of palate cleansing that will get rid of it. It's true. That's <laughs> true. That was my issue with the last class. That lasagna and garlic bread before I came down here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there are certain foods that you want to be careful of. Um, curries, particularly spicy foods. Um, you know, so you know that jalapeno breakfast burrito probably not a good idea. Um, so the curry literally that I had for lunch today. <laughs> well, you had it what now six or seven hours ago, right? Yeah, you're okay. It's generally within the previous two or three hours that it's really an issue. Three, three is kind of a stretch. 
but certainly within the previous two. Um, so you want to be careful of what you're eating. Um, an awful lot of competitions, mine included, work very hard to, to provide lunch after all after the judges have done all of their flights. It's not always something we can do, but we try to do that. And then when we're serving them, yeah, you know, heavily smoked meats or heavily smoked fish, that kind of thing, not a terribly good idea. Not only does it um, wreck the palate, but it tends to fill the room, and that can basically throw everything off. Um, so you're pretty much left with the traditional burgers and you know pizza and that kind of thing um, that are not so uh, not so abusive to your palate. I remember one time where I did a competition and as it turned out, it was not only a competition for beer, but it was also a chili cook-off. <laughs> and that was much. It was to go around and sample the chilies. And then we came back to try to do best of show. Which all of us looked at each other and we're all lost. We're all just lost. Um, we actually hung around for a couple hours before we got back together for best of show, and the, uh, the, <laughs> the organizer was very distraught. Um, yeah, it, pay attention to what you're eating. Um, don't be brushing your teeth right before you start judging. You know, do it a few hours before. Uh, just those kind of, just you know, pay attention, take care of your health. Um, I generally find that a decent gargle, that's a decent gargle, whether it's salt water or hydrogen peroxide, or chips, club soda, something like that that has a certain amount of acidity to it um, really is a wonderful palate cleanser after brushing my teeth and kind of gets rid of a lot of that mint use. Um, and makes your teeth even whiter, so what's that? Uh, okay, so we're, um, we are uh, talking about the no, nothing is lower than a 13. Um, pretty much, what you want to say to these people is something that you don't mind having somebody else read, and you wouldn't mind having it read five years from now. You're a better judge. There was a somewhat famous row that happened at the California State Fair eight, nine years ago, maybe even longer, where a judge sat there and said, tastes like cactus. And would not erase that from the score sheet. So Couldn't come up with anything else. <laughs> we had to debate whether or not that was weak. You know, we, we, nobody thought it was really appropriate. But we had to try to figure out why it wasn't appropriate. And basically, what we came up with is that it presupposes that he's tasted cactus, <laughs> and if he's good enough to note that, then he ought to be able to note the breed of cat. <laughs> So be very careful about that kind of stuff. Um, I can I use this story? Yeah. I um, will not write flip notes on my uh, on my score sheets, but in conversations with other judges, I might really just kind of lay it all out there. It tastes like crap, and I had to write earthy. You know, I mean, I just we're really discussing it. I'm going, and I think for the issue is this, this, and this, this. One of the rules, one of the ethics 
in judging is to refrain from doing that. And I have not always been so good at refraining from doing that. Especially when you're having a lot of fun at a competition. Um, you were having fun. I was sweating my ass off bringing you beer. Yes, you were. <laughs> and as it turned out, the one that I, I said, um, you know, tastes like fresh dog uh, it was Gary's. Freshly roasted circus peanuts and dog shit. <laughs> not, that I, not that I remember distinctly. But I was descriptive. Those are all tier three descriptors. Freshly roasted peanuts. Which is the same beer that took a 40.5 that year in first round nationals. So... So can we assume you know what dog shit tastes like? <laughs> 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 I neighbor, my neighborhood, maybe so. Um, How long was it before you figured out that was my beer? Um, we had the follow-up email. Ah. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, and I and you do refrain from that because somebody who made that beer may very well be in the room, sitting next to you, serving you your beer. <laughs> <laughs> walking the dog. Did you notice what the next one tasted like? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so be polite in your commentary, be polite in your in, in all of that. However, I've generally found that even if you're, you know, even if someone's in the room, they generally have a pretty good sense of humor about it afterwards. Um, oh, didn't win that one, but I'll get the next one. Um, I had to go take the Uzi out of his hand on the parking lot. <laughs> 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 that explains why the next beer took so long to get to the liquor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did it taste like that? <laughs> <laughs> that explains that strange caterwauling sound. <laughs> <laughs> sound. And why the lid was loose. Hmm. Okay. Um... So, talking about being prepared with your palate, being prepared as a judge, ethically, worthy, courteous, and kind, so positive attributes. Um, it is not the judge's responsibility to disqualify any beer. Um, it is the head judge's responsibility to fill out all paperwork, including the cover sheet, but oftentimes things can be delegated to stewards, such as cover sheets, etc. I almost always delegate one particular task to the stewards, and that is checking addition. Because I'll tell you, after 10 beers, that one gets awfully heavy to carry. So it, we, I tend to pass that off, and sure enough, we make simple math errors and that kind of thing. If you were a steward, though, what would you think is the proper response if you find somebody's made a math error? Do you correct the math error for them? No, bring it to the judge's attention. Bring it to the judge's attention. They have made a mistake. Yeah. And because oftentimes the bottom line score is what they actually mean. Now, is your, the bottom, the total score doesn't always have to be the sum of all of the categories? Because I've gotten score sheets before where it was like 37 points and I got 35 or whatever on the it added up to 37, mm -hmm. and it was 35 on the bottom, which means nobody checked the addition. Okay. 
Because I've actually had that happen several times. Chances are what's happened is, is that that judge started at like a 39 or something, changed a couple of aggregates, and still had to come down a couple more points and just didn't change the aggregates. Uh, <clears throat> that's where stewards double-checking become really important. And you almost always as a judge have to say, which check are at issue. Uh, so, so don't be afraid. Of, a 13 is a courtesy score. Yeah. Do you change the other scores to equal 13? You, if you feel that you can, yes. If you feel that you can't, you can write courtesy minimum on that 13. Okay, that's the one exception to that rule. But basically, you want to make sure that your scores are. Um, but typically, it's the bottom line score that went in for wherever you got your award or wherever you were uh, placed by. Uh, so somebody just didn't check their addition. But chances are, when we're dis when you're discussing with judges, you're discussing the bottom line score. You don't typically discuss the role of flavor, mouthfeel, and appearance in terms of points. You'll talk about them in terms of attributes, but not in terms of overall points. You're just looking for as judges to be within seven from top to bottom. And once you're there, you're there. Which brings up an interesting concept. Somewhere in there has to be average. Most beers are going to be average. It's kind of the definition of average, isn't it? And if your version of average is, say, a 25, because we're on a 50-point scale, and someone else's version of average is 30, or even 35, then your scores are going to pretty much track off that way every time you're average. Which means if you ever come to a point where one, per one judge likes something slightly more than another judge does, you're going to be wildly off in terms of scores. Wildly off. So it's kind of important every now and then to kind of double check if you're talking with a judge or somebody else. I mean, what, what do you think, what score is average to you? Oh, 32. Oh, well, I'm at 25. We're already seven points apart there. Hmm. Um, so, you, and you might have to adjust yourself up a little bit. There's no harm in giving more points. It's not an appropriate strategy to reserve points from the first couple of beers because you might have something better later in the flight. Your best beer may be the first one up. Give it the appropriate score. There's plenty of points to go around. And if you have, happen to have a tie, you'll resolve it. But don't hold back. You know, you know, I'd like to give this thing a 38, but I'll give it a 32 because it's only the first beer out of the shoot here. So, and trust me, it happens. And you know, just try not to be too reserved that way. You'll find that an awful lot of the older judges, by older I mean the ones who have been around the BJCP for typically more than about five or six years, have somewhat of that mentality because that was kind of how a lot of judges were trained. Um, you know, well, if you really need to adjust it, you'll get your score sheet back and you just adjust it up. Well, that takes time, and I really don't want to spend that much time on it. I've spent plenty on it as is. I've got better things to do. Um, so I try to make sure that I know what average is for most people and kind of make little adjustments as we go. All right. So you want to be a rear judge. The prep eight, page two, sorry, says make sure that beers are at proper temperature. Make sure that you got beer clean glasses or cups. 
air out the drinking cups, have a supply of drinking water, and maybe, maybe bread. Now, other than the fact we haven't really been supplying bread here, you have seen me basically put out an entire table full of uh, cups. Not only does it make it faster for me to pour, but it airs out the cups. You will find that cups have an aroma. Plastic. Um, soft cups are notoriously plastic. The other thing that can happen with cups is that they can affect appearance issues. They can kind of become hazy themselves because of the cold. Or, more often, they affect head retention. Had one, one particular competition where every single beer had no head. And I'm about four beers into it going, it can't be all the, this is all the same brewer, which it can't be. Or, there's something really wrong here. And as it turned out, I looked around and I realized everybody had low head retention. So I nudged the judge to the table next to me. You, you have trouble with head retention on it? Yeah, me too. Especially the cups. Oh yeah, so we kind of filtered around the room that it was probably an issue with the cups. Um, and everybody started to pay attention to that and give, give people some slack on head retention. So it isn't always the beer. I like to lay out quite a few cups before we start judging. Also, it helps me check for the ones that are cracked. Got to check for that. When it comes to pouring a beer, I'm somewhat fastidious as to how I will let people pour beers. And mostly what I want is I want the third beer to be exactly the same pour as the first beer. And I want the last beer in the flight to be poured exactly the same as the first beer in the flight. So I want absolute consistency when it comes to pouring these beers. And so, one of the things you may or may not have noticed, but certainly I know that I have practiced as best I can on these, is that I open them, I don't pick up the cup. I pour them all about the same, and the only thing I'm really doing is lifting that neck just enough to stop the flow and going on to the next one. What I'm trying hard not to do is stir up the leaves.
a lot more interest and complexity, it's still going to be reasonably neutral.
have them go through their beer list, and finally I settle on one that I like, and she brings it out, and my wife tastes it. She goes, Ooh, it tastes like Budweiser. And I kind of laugh, and I ask the lady, please bring me just a little bit of Budweiser. So she brought me a little bit of Budweiser, and I handed it to my wife, and I said, I taste this. Yeah, and it, you know, people don't often understand how complex beer can be until they actually have some complex beer and have it pointed out to them what the complex is. And last weekend, my 21-year-old stepfather called me from, she's in Santa Cruz, she called me from the bar asking me which oh, one she to was. <laughs> I was like, are you sure you're not my real daughter? It's from drinking all your beer. She's like, what's this delirium tremens stuff? I'm like, yeah, go ahead, order that. <laughs> she called me the next day, she goes, that was really good, but I shouldn't have drank quite so much of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's called yeah. delirium tremens. Yeah. I once ordered a pitcher of Sam Glass. What's coming around now is a homebrew drink on myself. <laughs> American Wheat. <clears throat> Alright, yeah, there's no way. You're either wearing it or I'm wearing it. Our group of us were out at a local uh, burger joint. Which will remain unnamed, it's just down the road. Um, we would normally have eight or quarter when we went in there. I'm sorry, they did. They sent us the wrong stuff instead of order. They sent us this stuff that's called old foghorn. Oh. Oh well, I think that'll do. Uh, he says, "I'll give it to you for the same price, though. It's like eight bucks a picture." All right. Okay. So I can let them giving you a deal. So after two pictures of that, we. Uh, <laughs> Adjourned for the evening, shall we say. What are you guys getting out of this uh, appearance? Great clarity and appropriateness. The style can be clear. Unusual for style. Yeah, is not yeah, not exemplified by the most traditional light color. That'd be a white collar? Lights. Yep. Mm -hmm. White cover, wispy cover with a solid mm -hmm. color. But white. Definitely white, yeah, creamy head. head. Yeah, yours is mine's mine's not very good. Very pretty. What are you getting out of the aroma? A little bubble gum. A little bit of stone fruit or something. A little bit of stone fruit. I definitely get the stone fruit. Don't get the bubble mm -hmm. gum. But I get a little bit of stone fruit, but I'm getting yeah, some the grittiness. Yeah. A very light bread crust to it. Mm -hmm. <coughs> also getting the yeastiness to it, right? kind of a white bready yeastiness, dough, bread dough. We were saying stone fruit, that might be a more accurate. And how are you, what are you guys getting for mouthfeel? Much bigger mouthfeel. Yeah, big mouth. Richard, a little bit, a little bit silky. It's got a creaminess. Creaminess. Yeah. 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 Yeah
secondly, it's generally going to have sat there and poured for a second, and it's going to be handed to you and brought to you. And many of those really, really high volatiles that might actually be there will blow off. And it's not unusual in lockers to have that stuff be there right at the very instant that the thing is poured, but not there half a minute later. So I think it's kind of unfair to go right after the aroma and try to find fault with it right up top. Because there is no actual pleasure drinking area where you will basically react that way. The second thing is, though, you do need to, to get some aroma before you start to get into the, uh, the appearance, mostly because we deal in such small, tiny pores that there's not much space for the gas to go before it's volatilized. So there's not that much volume to volatilize. In a full glass pour, it's going to take a long time for a lot of those things to dissipate and get out. And so you may end up missing things that are supposed to be there for more apparent things that are going to kind of fade in about 30, 30 seconds to a minute. So I generally let my beer sit for about 15 to 20 seconds, and then I'll start taking an aroma, uh, taking aroma out of it. And if I've still got that sulfury, okay, I'm going to pay attention if it's lingering, you know, if it persists, or if it's going to be fading. And I'll note that. If it fades, then to me, it's not as big a flaw than if, it's, than if it persists all the way through. You know, fading just probably means the beer didn't lager longer. Or, you know, Maybe it needs to sit. Probably it's not bad. It just hasn't been completely left to, uh, to its own devices to finish. So be very careful about, again, about being a fault finder and getting right into it and just starting to write what you're finding. Because you may run out of room real fast, and secondly, it may not be there for very long. You know, I hate arguing with particular judges who, who will say, oh, I love the way it tasted. The mouthfeel was great, wasn't it? But I got sulfur at, the, at first. It's not there now. But I got sulfur right away. Okay. So? So? Okay. Um, after you've done the, the apparent, sniff it again. Has anything changed? What we just talked about. Is it, is, have things faded? Have they changed? Is it, is it persisting? <laughs> if nothing's changed, if you've got off aromas, now it's time to say that they're becoming strong faults. Okay. Um, take a taste. If this says write down some flavors that you detect, if you have any real strong flavors and stuff, yeah, write that down. But generally, I will go um, right into the mouthfeel, and then I'll come back to that. Um, this says take a third taste, concentrating on mouthfeel, body, and carbonation are essential. Again, you have to cut beers that you evaluate some slack in carbonation. Because generally, again, a little tiny two-ounce sample, and you see that I'm pouring right straight down the middle. I'm making an awful lot of stuff evolve in aroma and creating a head and giving it some retention, but I'm also softening the beer. Even worse are the ones that pour it all into a pitcher and then bring it out to your table. By then, it can be really soft. California State Fair, probably the most egregious error that they can do is they'll be in, they'll put their uh, trailer, basically a big refrigerated container full of beer, 
in one area, and maybe they'll be in a in a place where they we can't actually judge because hey, there's fresh coats of paint on all of the stuff for displays. So we move to a whole other building, concrete surface. So they'll go and get all of the beers in a flight in a pitcher, put them on a car, and roll that car like this all the way around the one building, down the steps, and around over to the other building, and through the door, and it comes to you. I'm evaluating head retention based on all the pictures. <laughs> and then, you know, by the time I get the beer, I, I have to be very generous with mouthfeel because it's got almost no carbonation left. Um, so, be aware of your surroundings, kind of like be aware of what you're actually tasting. Because nine times out of ten, the brewer at home is going to pour himself a full glass of that beer and start, and start reading the evaluations. He's going, what do you mean no head retention, man? I've got tons of head retention. Yeah, in a full glass. But, you know, we have much smaller samples that we're working. Um, get all the way down to 11. He's already talking about looking at the head again and some other things. Head retention characteristic. Um, this, by the way, was written by Gordon Strong, who was our grandmaster for and president of BJC. It's his method of how he does stuff, and it's pretty good, but I do change some things up based on my own experience. Um, he's saying then, uh, write down some more stuff for, uh, for aroma, finally write your score, um, start to write your score on flavor, start to write your overall comments, You know, finish all the rest of your scores and double check things up. Really important. Write what you're evaluating first. Don't worry about the score. You write everything out, then you can come back and start uh, filling in scores. And then you can kind of, a lot of cases, you refer back to your own notes going, well, did it kind of meet my expectations? And, yeah, plus a little bit. Get a little bit, you know, so I'm going a few points high on everything. Pretty soon I brought the thing all the way up to a 36. You know, I'm, I'm above my average by a point or two on each one. And it really does fill in the, the points fast. Um, I can tell you unequivocally that the overall the overall quality of the beers that have been presented in competition are miles ahead of where they've been in years past. Every year they seem to get better. And I don't know if that's just a regional thing, but from what I'm reading and from the people I'm talking to, it's a national thing. The ingredients are staggeringly good and available and fresh. Uh, the knowledge base is deeper than it has ever been for home brewers. Um, the evolution is going faster in terms of how home brewers are adapting and creating beer styles. And the quality with which we're preserving styles that are otherwise fading uh, is impressive as well. Uh, so going into to a, a, an evaluation expecting that you're going to be trashing beers because they're not that good um, is kind of flawed logic. You should be going in realizing that most brewers are bringing their best and they just want it to be a little bit better. You know, they want to hit that next level. 
So your commentary and your feedback does not have to, should address every single thing that you are, uh, if you find a flaw, the making of a flaw, but does not have to go into tremendous detail. You shouldn't have to turn it over on the backside and start talking about minutia of transferring beer to a DCI asset. Um, you just want to let them know to finish, let things finish out fermenting, rouse the beer to reduce diacetyl. You know, but not a whole lot of minutia. Uh, generally, they can find that information for themselves. And the BJCP is even developing sheets to go along with the score sheets to give more detailed feedback to individual flaws. So we're constantly working on it as well. Finally, after you have evaluated, when you are completely done and your fellow judges are done, then and only then is it appropriate to verbally make comments about the beer. It is entirely inappropriate to say things like, hmm, like, huh, tastes like Chimay, hmm, huh, tastes like Drake's IPA. You know, um, just like, ah, oh, there's a flaw in that. You know, it, it, it's entirely inappropriate to do that. Yet you will find that in competition after competition, judges do that. And it's perfectly appropriate to turn around and go, can we discuss it after we write things up? And most often times they'll shut up for at least one or two beers. Well, if you're an inexperienced judge, you're looking for some direction. Don't you really want that sometimes? You want that direction after you have written your score. Because you want your evaluation to be your evaluation. If you really want to have direction in, in what you're tasting and that sort of thing, then you want to contact a, a well-respected, high-ranking judge in your area and sit and judge some beers with them. Talking about them. Learning about them. Trust me, going along and talking during an evaluation, you'll get less on the page. You'll learn, but you'll get far less on the page. So, write your evaluation and then talk about it. Well, this is what I found. Oh, really? It's not really that? Maybe it's this? Fine. And you can, if you want to, you can erase some of your comments. You're going to do it with pencil, not pen. I know one judge who insists on writing in pen so he can cross stuff out and write, they made me cross this out. <laughs> they said I was wrong. Um, it's all kinds of personalities. So, yeah, it, even, if, even if it is your very, very first time, yeah, you sit with that judge and you find out who's the lead judge, you go, this is my first time judging. Oh, okay. Or, because this is my first time judging this style. I've never judged this style. I don't know what to expect. Oh, well, before we start then, here's kind of where the general thing lies. It's like this. Da, 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 da. Read, this I'll read the guidelines with you um, to kind of point it out. They'll point out the classic examples. They'll kind of go, well, this one is creamier, more caramel than this one that's really dry and hoppy. So it can be in there, but the balance needs to be towards length. Okay? A good, and this is why I constantly say a high-ranking, well-respected judge in your area. Because there are high-ranking judges that won't give you the time of day. They just, they just don't have the communication skills or the care to really help you move on. But there are plenty of judges in this area that want to help you become better judges. So don't be afraid to ask. 
But if you really think you're having palate issues or something like that, then you probably want to sit down and do some palate training with a judge. You can ask the you to be paired up with somebody that you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the next page, page four, has some feedback issues, um, things going on. Kind of talks about how what you're kind of looking for. Feedback one and feedback two. Um, these are kind of some depth to the feedback for you to go through. Um, lastly, with a pair of pages, I want to pass out to everybody. You will be asked for a classic style. What tends to come up a lot, by the way, is mild as the classic example. Basically, you'll be presented with a blank score sheet. It's two pages each one, so just take two, the top two pages and move them on back. Um, you'll be asked to, to write it up as if you were actually tasting the beer. Unlike the rest of the questions where you're going to be saying, it's a range from here to here, it could be from high caramel to high chocolate malt, high to low hop, yada, yada, yada. In this case, you're writing it up as if you're tasting the beer. This is how this beer tastes and why it's a classic example. Because it's balanced this way, this way, this way. Okay? That's how you're going to write it up. Don't say malt low to none, hops low to none. Write it up like you're tasting it. You're either taste hops or you're not. Okay? So just realize that that's the key to that last question, is writing a score sheet. And the idea of it is, is instead of another style comparison question, we ask you to write a style score sheet and one proof is going to stand in style number two, proof is to communicate. The number one reason, that the number one thing that this exam grades is your ability to communicate. So are you actually taking the beer or is it just... No. Yeah. Okay. It's a hypothetical classic example of stock. Okay. You will be given four beers to um, to grade during the exam. Unless they change the format between now and November. I don't know if they will. The format, there's a proposal to change the format to give you three hours to write the exam and then another hour just to evaluate beer. But so far that's not been or become the law of the land. Any questions? That's the basic idea on judging. We've been practicing it all along when we're evaluating these peers. And notice I try to use the term evaluating. The judging that you're doing is really more about hey, which one's better than any other and should go on to best of show. What the process is that you're doing to get there is evaluating. And that way you're communicating with the brewer as to how, they, how well they did in getting started. I got plenty now. I suppose I should 
evaluating half of isos. First off, half of means with yeast. Meat half with yeast, yeah. So half is the yeast. Half of isos therefore means we serve the yeast. There's a couple of ways you can do that. In competition, what we do is basically roll the beer back and forth a few times. With commercial examples, you can actually take them and just kind of swirl them a little bit and get them, get the yeast all the way in there. The older it is, the more compacted down it is. But even that, and notice that was not vigorously shaking, but that does not create an issue with it foaming over. We evaluate that hiss. We're listening for that hiss. That says that it's a well-carbonated beer. So if it doesn't have any yeast in it, how will that change the flavor? Less bready. Uh, mouthfeel on this? 
finish. It's light here. Still quite hazy from the from the weeds. Yeah, it's, it's not a, as milky, is it? It's a clearer haze. Yeah. 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 It doesn't, doesn't make that much sense. It becomes a crystal bison if it doesn't have any yeast. <coughs> so one of the things you want to do if you're judging oh. wheat beers is have an agreement of whether or not you're going to judge them with or without the yeast. It'll be consistent. Much less clovey. Which is probably a late hop. But definitely a lot more subtle. A lot drier. Fader. This is very, very, very important when it comes to pouring any beer. Having yeast in the pour changes the flavor substantially. And it'll happen even on something like an old ale. Um, there was one particular event where an old ale was up for best of show and did eventually get it, and I argued like hell against it because I had a very yeasty pour by comparison. I lost the argument, but
It tastes entirely different. Well, I, yeah, especially early in the in the uh, in that case where you've got a keg and all the yeast ends up sliding back down the bottom, it takes a few pints to clear up. We're loath to, you know, take a couple of pints and pour it out because it's yeasty. Yeah, break it. It'll get better. Freaking <laughs> <laughs> beer is free. Come on. <laughs> Yes. I'm not the aroma. No, not really. 
We can say that each one of the styles in a question for three and a third points overall, you can get half of that, basically 1.8 points or so. Um, and your accuracy of your description on that, based on the whole point breakdown, it allocates how much of that you get. So you still get partial credit, but it's substantially reduced. So it's important to just write something on every question. Even if you barely lift the pen and you write, I really don't know anything about this style, you can get a half point or a point out of it. And trust me, that makes a lot of difference in the end. Okay, so some flavors we're getting. Aromas, we'll start with that. Bottles and bubble gum, yeah, big time. This is Weinhundstaffen. Ah, classic. This is the Hefeweizen beer. This is the Hefeweizen yeast that's the most popular in the white yeast catalog. Light enough and spritzy enough 
that you're going to feel refreshed. And there's a certain filling capacity to the yeast. <coughs> you're probably going to stop before you really get hammered most times. So, that's what he liked to drink the at sessions. I was like, I Much better mood all day. 
Um, uh, does this have Munich in it? Yes. Because that's what I'm confusing for the sherry, I think. Okay. Is it? Munich mm -hmm. readiness. Yeah. Because um, there's definitely a bread crust readiness, a richness to this um, that I think kind of evokes uh, a caramel nuttiness, like a banana bread kind of an overall sensation yeah. to it. It's the Munich that I'm tasting. Yeah. It's definitely got that richness to it. Yeah. Almost cloy. It's got. I would say that the aftertaste has sort of a cloy and fruitiness. Not a cloy maltiness or cloy sweetness. Definitely like a cloy and fruitiness. But I can. Yeah, I can see where you can get some cloy out of it. Yeah, kind of sticks there. That's what cloy is all about. <laughs> So, has anybody not had rice and Imagine a Bach beer, a traditional Bach beer, made with 50% wheat instead of all Munich and chocolate malt. And then fermented with the whites and yeast. Lots of richness to this beer. Maybe I don't like 
screwed up. I'm getting like smoke and hickory out of it. Really you got ribs on the brain. In the nose. What you have to I had three nights. You got pulled pork for lunch again, Gary? That could be a lot where that raisiny goes. Um, wouldn't say that it's an invalid thought. It isn't necessarily going to be shared by a majority of judges in this room. Uh, you might want to think in terms of caramel. Um, but all of the flavors that you're talking about indicate richness in terms of cooking. Mm -hmm. And they point towards melanoidins. You are finding them with meat-based terms. Others are finding them with candy-based terms. And in this case, probably candy, probably candy would be candy-based terms. Uh, caramel per se, not necessarily, but certainly richness, uh, sweetness, caramelized sugars uh, are in there. I can see where you can find some smoky notes in the aftertaste where, where people are getting a lot of the raisiny and, and well, it's like burnt raisins. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it from the taste. I get raisins and Currants and stuff like that from the taste. I only got it to do it. Oh, yeah. Raisins and caramel. Yeah, I get like very candy type flavors. But the smell is very for things like meat. And then I was like, smoke. Okay. Uh, smokiness like that can come from yeast autolysis. Those could be flavors that can indicate an issue with age, breakdown of yeast in the bottle, that kind of thing. So be very careful. Yes, it's this like style a style of hot mash going on here, 60. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably around, well, classically it would be a decoction. Mm -hmm. um, but chances are it's right in there at about 152 to 154. Um, chances are they use melanoid and all. Um, chances are they're using uh, a lot of native malt and using a slightly extended boil. Or they're using a particle method where they'll actually take off some of the first runnings and put them in a very hot boiler to develop melanoid and inject that back in. This like hits you over the head with it. Yeah. It makes so, sense now. I think that I'm not resisting what you're saying, but um, it's important that if you're finding those kinds of flaws that you realize that that is a flaw and it does have a cause, and you should be able to name the cause, or at least be able to say, oh, not appropriate to style because it could be autolysis, this could be an older example. And chances are this is a slightly old example. I was kind of hesitant to say anything, but I talked myself out as well. Aventinus doesn't, uh, what you, what I do get is a definite alcohol warmth out of it. It goes right in there with all that raisiny stuff and the rest of it, and does elevate an awful lot of the esters, um, and, and take them to a kind of a different level. Well, yeah, out of the taste, I'm not getting any of that. I'm just getting the... I'm just getting, I was at first, I'm not getting it now, but I was at first getting an ever so slight little band-aid in the finish. Ever so slight, which is usually um, an indication of autolysis, one of the indications. But it's one of the um, one of the aromatics that can go with um, an old example of a smoke A really one. It's a flaw, but it's gold smoke. Okay. One more. 
How does that compare with the Dunkel Vice? Oh, it's much richer. Normally, a little bit of chocolate aftertaste. Yeah. Vegetable? No, something else. Different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you ready to move on to sour beers? Yes. Quality to it, a lemonade quality to it. Um, 
This is Berliner Kindle. It is extraordinarily rare. I came across a six-pack of it sitting on a shelf forlornly um, right at the beginning of the, uh, this whole class, and it's been sitting in my refrigerator at home. Sorry, guys, we don't nice have any brilliant. Yeah, I've hit an awful lot of the leftover leaded pride instead. It's so. <laughs> <laughs> a good substitute. But it's not like this. And I'll tell you, on those 100 degree days we've had, the rest of the I just let it Anyway, um, I love making this style of beer. I have made it in several variations, some less successful than others. And primarily, one of the things that, that works with this style is to go through a complete decoction from about 90 degrees all the way up to mash up. Let it come out and basically heat the mash up and you I found that the best thing to do is actually add the hops to the to the mash. And I'm only hop when I hop it, I only hop to like six or eight ideas. Nothing. I mean, you can't taste the blue can typically. No hop flavor whatsoever. Um, and so I'm not even using real big vigorous double hop. I found spalts work perfectly. They're very clean. And so I use spalts. Um, but once it's done. Um, it hasn't actually fully boiled. I end up uh, inoculating it with a cold yeast and uh, a lactobacillus. And I just let them go. And the lactobacillus heats up every bit of starch. Every bit of the protein, every bit of that haze and the rest of it. And they can actually come out fantastically sour. To the point where you actually, typically, traditionally, this is served with a woodruff syrup which is a sweet, um, kind of a minty syrup. Or resin. Resin, yeah, that will offset some of that salad. Um, and it, it's just, it's fantastic stuff. I just find this to be just like lemonade. I only make this to be about a 10.38 when I'm making it, so it's really thin. Um, this particular beer, <coughs> How do you guys feel about it in terms of flavor and in terms of body? Really light body. Light body, mostly from the acidity, but there's a certain richness to the acidity as well, isn't there? It's got kind of a citrus oil. Citrusy depth, yeah. Lemonade is my my thought on it, but definitely has kind of a bready aftertaste, doesn't it? Yes. Very slight. Really different notes. Sort of Mike's like that Any Some guesses on how much alcohol yeah. is in this thing? It's, now that it's warmed up, it smells like our beehive smells when you open our beehive. It smells just like that. 3%. Two three. Five. Right, so like three. Four. Oh, in the ballpark. It's like two and a half. So, this is our little transition into our beer.
vinegar, in that sourness can equate to vinegar for you, yes. However, actual acetic acid is a flaw. Acetic acid comes from acetobacter, period. No other bacteria that inoculates itself in beer will create acetic acid. I, had a, I, I did a lot of looking up on this to find this out because I was trying to figure out where acetic acid was named as being something that happened in beer, yet they wanted to avoid acetobacter. And so uh, I was trying to figure out where this is coming from. Basically, there's a textural difference between lactic acid and acetic acid to me. Um, for me, lactic acid coats, it's smooth, it, it's tart, but it's kind of this overall smooth tartness there. It can be quite hard and, and such, but still covers. Acetic acid kind of sits on the top of my tongue and, and acts like it's got a bunch of little ice picks. Yeah, I find acetic acid or acetovinegar much, much more intense, much more sharp. So we get into this in aroma. When we get into this in appearance, it's very clear. Uh, it's a brownish to red color. What beer is this? Flanders red. What beer is this? So Flanders red. It's Monk's Cafe Flemish Sour. It's actually it's the Flemish red that's aged Like this, just kind of coating, 
and enjoyable on its own. You wouldn't necessarily have to cut it with something else to sweeten it up. Very fine. It's a soft mm -hmm. sour. Lambics especially range from very hard to very soft. Well, that's going to be a matter of experience. Example, 
his back sweetened. Significantly more here than it is there. It's not only back sweetened, but I I don't have it verified, but I'm pretty sure that it's artificially flavored in cherries. Because it's so overtly cherry syrup. Um, that it, it is a splendor then too, so yeah. 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 Actually, it's pretty aggressive. <laughs> 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 
He won't shoot it either. I told him if he knocked it unconscious, I'd eat. Barter. Sorry, it ain't one of my favorites. Uh, first, first, so I'm going to set you. Lots of birds. I'm not going to my nose. It's like a cheese. Right here. 
So, okay. aroma-wise, what are you guys getting at? Like blue cheese. Or... <laughs> definitely. Should you get any stuff? Definitely old hops. Older hops. No. It, that was a funky old Jesus, the funky old rooms, and funky old, funky old. I mean, this does not smell like your sauce. But there is a sweat sock kind of character to it. That's, I mean, I, I Just go not your sweat socks. Stunner per se, which I think to be really kind of an offensive flaw. But um, usually, the only sweat socks I get that. Really so it's There's also kind of a little licorice note to it. Um, there's definitely kind of a. Um, there's definitely an almond in there. There's a hint of almond in there. We get kind of rainy sweet after. So, typically, Lambics are released when they're three to four years old. They are spontaneously fermented. They involve a lot of raw wheat and even some sugar. And they utilize what's called a turbid mash. A turbid mash is exactly the opposite of a decoction mash. In a turbid mash, you take off the thinnest part of the mash, the liquid cheese. Intentionally, you kill the enzymes. And then add that back in, extracting even more starches from the raw wheat that goes into this. The hops are typically three years old and older. Pretty much anything except Cascade will work. Um, so say these words. This is Bon Marriage Parfait, another very rare lambic in, in America anyway. And a classic example of Carbonation. 
So, there is, what are you getting in the aroma? Right here, apple. What else? More almond. Green apple, yeah. Almond? Lots of almond. Pineapple? Yes, smells like an apple. Like a bruised pineapple? A lot of earthiness, a lot of uh, horsehidiness, but definitely softer than the Cantillon. Bone, spelled B-O-O-N-E, Bone is a blender. He buys Lambics from other breweries and blends them. Uh, Cantillon is one of the classic producers. They make a whopping 850 barrels a year. You go into the brewery, the bottles are literally lined up against the wall. Any bottles whenever the hell he feels like. <laughs> They are highly effervescent. These get up around four volumes. Wow. Um, this is why those semi river valley. And I was getting a uh, little peach out of this too, which is kind of nice. And. Yeah, I know. 
Roll age. <laughs> okay, here's the last straight diamond, or well, straight goose that we're going to try. We're going to do some fruit ones and some blended, other blends. Yeah. Um, this is from Jardine. Which is a family which somewhere around somewhere around the 1800s broke away from the Champagne region of France and found themselves in Bruges and decided they were going to start making in the Sun Valley lambics. And so they make it with a distinctly wine-like approach to things. In that they carefully work, work out every single barrel in taste things and really pay attention to their blending. This is dark So they want it to taste like this. <laughs> they worked really hard. Alright, alright. A lot of anise in there, Ron. A lot of anise. I do get a definite amount of anise with her stuff. Um, definite, like, like a cinnamon to the flavor. Um, more of the lemon and more of the, a um, lot more of the cherry. That one's actually palatable. No, that one actually has a, I can't think of the smell. Lots of barnyard. The only one that's even more barnyardy than this is uh, Hanson's, which can be downright. Oh, so nasty. Uh, let's see. <coughs> so, 
I'd just like to say that anybody that tells me in the future that being a career judge is like, well, I'll try to be easy to do. I'm going to sock them right in the back of the nose. Which one of these bottles? Cherry. 
when you get overt cherry, you start to get more of the nuts, too, which is kind of interesting. Without the pits, this is um, not nearly as good a beer. Gary tonight is the speed bump in our track. Once you get past the kind of crappy aroma, it really tastes I'm like... Blender. Yeah, cherry and almond and a definite sort of black pepper. 
I'd still have a really hard time that close because it's perfectly out of anything, but it's part of a It's also a really good one. Yeah. 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 I find this a lot better than the one. You said it's crappy ones, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good one. I rate at least a 22. The cool thing about this is even though the cherry completely ferments out, I mean, there's not even any skins left when they're when it's done. Wow. Um, even though it completely ferments out, it's got a ton of cherry essence to it. Of course, it's picked up all that color from the skin. Even in the edges. Yeah. Are there any pits left at the end? Um, yeah, the pits are still there, but the. Uh, I'd be a little scared. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cherry Lamex and the uh, <clears throat> the peach and that kind of stuff all go back to about World War II when they were trying to compete with um, other mass marketed beers and trying to sort of pre-sweeten their beers. And that has been taken to its ultimate conclusion uh, by Lindemans. Mm -hmm. They now make a they make very good Lambic when you uh, taste it right out of the barrel. But they blend it out. They actually blend it out not only with um, other lambics, but they'll blend it out with uh, a pilsner or a hellas, actually a Belgian version of a hellas, just to give it a more beery flavor and less acidity, and then they will intentionally sweeten yeah, it. And they do it. They do it strictly to sell. And so what? And uh, it was less than 20 years ago that it was, that it was just a brilliant beer and it has since been crapped up. Dying styles. I still feel my way to drink. It's very hard to be a living friendly these days. Comments on it? Other than what we bring in Gary?